0: 1 Corinthians chapter 14, 1 Corinthians chapter 14, if you want to start turning there. This is an extremely controversial chapter, perhaps the hardest chapter to interpret in all of the book of 1 Corinthians, probably one of the harder chapters to interpret or to discuss in a group in anywhere in the New Testament. And so let me begin by saying to you, if you're in the room right now and you're from a charismatic background or you're from a Pentecostal background, Please know that we love you, and that's part of what Paul's discussion is in 13, is setting up the discussion of 14, where he talks about love, and that as I walk through this text and try to expound on what it says today, there's nothing personal, there's nothing vindictive, there's nothing argumentative coming across. I'm just going to do the very best I can to lay open what Paul's trying to say in 1 Corinthians chapter 14. I hope you know that you're loved, you're wanted at Cedarville, But at Cedarville, we also have to wrestle with difficult issues. So if you disagree with me on the sermon today, that's okay. If you disagree with me on another sermon, that's okay. What we're going to try to do is wrestle with what God's word says to us. Now, when we come to this issue in particular, it's a controversial one because it deals with experiences. And we all want to talk about our experiences because I've experienced this. That means it has to be true, right? So how many of you are sitting still right now? You know this is a trick question, right? So you're trying to figure it out. But you understand that we also know that the earth is spinning really fast and it's moving around the sun also. Yet when we look at our senses, we realize our senses tell us that we're sitting still. And so our experience, my point in that is, our experience does not always give us truth. And so we don't look to our experience to say my one experience indicates all truth. Because my experience is different from your experience, different from your experience, different all over this arena. What we do is we look at God's word and we say, God's word is the truth. And so we allow God's word to speak to our lives. We don't sit in judgment on the word. The word sits in judgment on us. So as we look at what God's word has to say, we allow it to speak. That's what I want to ask you to do as we wrestle with this difficult issue today, is we look at God's Word and allow it to speak. Now, I don't have time in the next 30 minutes to unpack all the different views on this topic, so I'm going to walk through and tell you what I believe the verses are talking about, and then we'll move on. Now, I've got a long introduction, so we've got to roll. Because as I go through these introductions, I always try to give you some of the major positions. So they're going to put the three major positions on tongues. If you haven't figured out that's what 1 Corinthians 14 is about, then welcome to the party. Uh, Speaking in tongues, three major positions. And I'm going to try not to joke around as much as I normally do, because I know for some of you it's a real sensitive issue. So we're just going to try to walk through it respectfully, look at what the text says, and then we'll move on. If I offend you, I apologize. I have no intentions of offending. I'm just trying to speak what the text says. Let's look. You've got three positions. Cessationism. On the cessationist position, it means that the signed gifts are no longer present. They have ceased. So that would mean you're not going to find gifts like speaking in tongues, things of that nature, any longer. That those were gifts that were just for the Pentecostal, the Pentecost time period, the Acts time period, where you were confirming the gospel message. After the gospel message went out, those gifts ceased, and they are no longer present. You have semi-cessationism or not normative is what some people talk about. What that means is that you don't want to say that God can't do it. You don't want to say it's not possible, uh, but you also don't think it's something that should happen in the church all the time. So you're not looking for this gift. You're not seeking it out. You're not saying it should be a normal part of our activity. And so that's the semi-cessationist or not normative position. And then a continuation. Now, this would be where you'd find the Pentecostal movement, and the Pentecostal movement gets its name from Pentecost, where the Holy Spirit fell and people spoke in tongues, so they call themselves Pentecostal, relating back. Or the charismatic movement. We talked about tongues in 1 Corinthians 12, and how charis is the word for grace gift. And so the charismatics take those grace gifts and say that they continue to this day. You'll find this in the Assemblies of God Church as well. And I've got their doctrinal statement just to show you some of of why this begins to get controversial. The continuation believes that tongues should be a part of the Christian life. Now there's varying degrees of where that falls and I can't go into all of them. Some people say that you have to speak in tongues and that's a sign of the baptism of the Holy Spirit. Others don't go quite that far. And so I can't break all those down for you. You will do that in class. What about here at Cedarville? Well, here's our doctrinal statement up on the screen. Not the whole thing, just the parts that relate. On the doctrinal statement, it says for faculty and staff that we believe the baptism of the Holy Spirit is that he, being the Spirit, baptizes all believers into the body of Christ at conversion. That means that once we're saved, we're all baptized with the Holy Spirit. Whether you knew you were baptized with the Holy Spirit or not, the Holy Spirit now lives within you, and that's in our doctrinal statement. It also says we believe the sign gifts of the Holy Spirit are not intended to be a pattern for today. So that allows for either that cessationist position or that semi-cessationist or not normative position. Either one fits within what the doctrinal statement says here. So if you're on faculty or you're on staff, you concur with our doctrinal statement every year. You sign that you believe what our doctrine says, and that's what you'll teach in the classroom. That's what you'll talk about as you go around. That's what you believe. That's what you affirm. And so if you're faculty or staff, this is what you have to affirm all right? Not every interpretation of every verse that we'll go through today, just those two different items. If you're a student here, you don't have to sign our doctrinal statement. If you're a student here, you don't have to agree with me today. You can hold whatever position you want to hold, just like you can on a number of other issues, and as long as you don't create a disruption. So in joking, as long as you don't start running down through here speaking in tongues or doing something crazy like that, because if you do, John Wood's going to tackle you, and I'm just kidding. He wouldn't do that. Who rang the doorbell? I don't know. If you don't create a distraction, you're welcome at Cedarville and we love you no matter what your position is. All right. Now I put out my disclaimers. Can I just walk through the text and have a good time without offending you today? Is that okay? Will y'all give me that leeway? All right. Let's just try to have fun. I will quit doing so many different disclaimers. Cessationism. Here you go. They ceased 1 Corinthians 13, 8 through 10. I skipped over this part when we went through it intentionally because I wanted one controversial sermon rather than three. Uh, They confirmed the message of the apostles, Hebrews 2, 3, and 4. With the completion of New Testament revelation, these gifts have ceased. There's a notable absence in church history. Most people look at church history and say it's not really present till you come back to the early 1900s, 1904, 1906, but, but depending on whether you go back to Agnes Osmond and the class there in Topeka, Kansas, or whether you go to Azusa Street in 1906 with, with Seymour. And so in the 1900s is where this really kicked back up. Now, this position still believes that God can heal and perform miracles, does perform miracles, but it's not given these ability to people since the apostolic age. Here are their verses. Love never ends. As for prophecies, they will pass away. You see this. As for knowledge, it will pass away. When the perfect comes, the partial will pass away. But there's a different word used here for tongues. They talk about the ceasing or the cessation then comes from that and have tongues have ceased. It also looks at Hebrews 2, 3, and 4, which says it was declared by the Lord, attested to us by those who heard. And then God also bore witness with signs and wonders and various miracles. You also have the semi-cessationist position. A.B. Simpson was one of the guys that started this or founded this. You have many different proponents and was confronted by an outbreaking based on 1 Corinthians 4.12 and 39, came up with the position, seek not, forbid not. And he based this off of basically forbid not was right here in 1 Corinthians 14.39, do not forbid to speak with tongues. And so that's kind of the semi-cessationist position. The continuation of tongues or continuation of the gifts, Pentecostal, charismatic. It's another position that believes the miraculous gifts should be normative, an essential part of every church's life. Some would say speaking tongues is evidence of the baptism of the Holy Spirit. Those who hold this position offer up Acts and 1 Corinthians as evidence. Now, I pulled this off the website yesterday. And so I'm not cherry picking. I just went right to the Assemblies of God website and said, here are the two statements they have that relate to this so that you could see this is an ongoing issue you're gonna have to face. So why in the world would I do something controversial in chapel and talk about it? Because you gotta face it. And if we don't talk about it here, then you're gonna encounter it at some point in life. And we try to do everything with academic excellence. I want you to have thought through all these issues so you know where you stand and to be able to look at what the text says. Here's their doctrinal statement. Says, we believe the baptism in the Holy Spirit is a special experience following salvation that empowers believers for witnessing and the effective service, just as it did in the New Testament times. One of four cardinal doctrines. Number eight, we believe the initial physical evidence of the baptism of the Holy Spirit is speaking in tongues, as experienced on the day of Pentecost and referenced throughout Acts and the epistles. So that's the doctrinal statement on the Assemblies of God website. I've got the website for you here if you want to take a picture of your phone so you could go look at it later. So the question then emerges, should all speak in tongues? Now, I skipped this part of 1 Corinthians 12, again, so that we would have one controversial sermon, not two or three. And so that means i got to backtrack and pick up some of these different items. All right? So 1 Corinthians chapter 12, you've got your Bible in 14, you flip back, or if you have your electronic version, you scroll down and you're going to get back to 1 Corinthians chapter 12, verse 28. 1 Corinthians chapter 12, verse 28 is up here. It says this, and God has appointed in the church first apostles, second prophets, third teachers, then miracles, then gifts of healing, helping, administration, various kinds of tongues. Then he asks these rhetorical questions. Are all prophets? Now, I put the no in italics and in parentheses, all right? That's not in your Bibles there. But that's the expected answer is, are all prophets? No. Are all apostles? No. Are all teachers? No. Do all work in miracles? No. Do all possess gifts of healings? No. Do all speak in tongues? No. So what that would indicate to us is the anticipated no answer means that every person is not expected to speak in tongues during their lifetime. And so this is 1 Corinthians chapter 12, and it gives us the anticipated no answer, and then he gives us a clue that's going to come important a little later on, but earnestly desire the higher gifts. Now, what does he mean there? We'll get to that in 1 Corinthians 14. What about the baptism of the Holy Spirit? specifically referenced in the Assemblies of God doctrinal statement that the baptism of the Holy Spirit in their belief is confirmed by speaking in tongues. Let's look at what baptism of the Holy Spirit is in the Bible. There are seven instances that combine the words baptism and spirit. Six of those refer to Pentecost. Here they are so that you don't have to take my word for it. Matthew three eleven, I indeed baptize you with water unto repentance. This is John the Baptist that's referencing here. But he who is coming after me is mightier than I, whose sandal I am not worthy to carry. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire. Mark one eight, I indeed baptize you with water, but he will baptize you with the Holy Spirit. Luke 3.16, John answered, saying to all, I indeed baptize you with water, but one mightier than I is coming, whose sandal I am not worthy to loose, he will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire. John one thirty three, I did not know him, but he who sent me to baptize with water said to me, upon whom you see the Spirit descending and remaining on him, this is he who baptizes with the Holy Spirit. All four of those in the Gospels. There are two more in Acts that look either toward Pentecost or back at it. Acts one five for John truly baptized with water, but you shall be baptized with the Holy Spirit not many days from now. Acts 11.16, then I remembered the word of the Lord, how he said, John indeed baptized with water, but you shall be baptized with the Holy Spirit. There's six of the seven. There's one more. It's 1 Corinthians 12.13. I skipped it. I told you the right interpretation from my perspective is that the baptism of the Holy Spirit, and according to our doctrinal statement, is that you were baptized with the Holy Spirit upon salvation, and I went right past it. It was a CU Friday. We had 700 people here, and again, I wanted one controversial sermon rather than three. So here it is. Read it for yourself. For by one Spirit, we were all baptized into one body, whether Jews or Greeks, whether slaves or free, and have all been made to drink into the one Spirit. You have seven verses that all talk about unity, all talk about baptism into the body. Some people even doubt that this First Corinthians passage is talking about the same thing because here the Spirit baptizes rather than Jesus baptizing you into the Spirit. And so there's some controversy there. I don't have time to go into that much greater. Here's what I believe that the baptism of the Spirit is, an initial and universal work of the Spirit that happens to all believers and places them all within the body of Christ, the church. Thus, in my interpretation, all believers have experienced this baptism whether they know it or not. Okay? That's where we are. Now, quickly, and then I'm going to move to the text. What's the difference between Acts and Corinthians? In Acts, you see tongues as a confirmation of the gospel. Every time it spread out, there was a new confirmation with signs and wonders of the gospel. And so you see. Here in Acts 1-8 as a model, you see in Acts 2 in Jerusalem, in Samaria in Acts 8, and then to the uttermost parts of the earth in Acts 10, you see this. Acts 1-8 as the model is, but you shall receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you. You shall be witnesses to me in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and to the end of the earth. That's what I see happening. Here are the differences I see taking place in Acts and Corinth. In Acts, tongues were actual languages. Immediately understood by at least some of those who heard. In 1 Corinthians 14, tongues must be interpreted. In Acts, the purpose is confirmation and perhaps evangelization. In gifts, it's supposed to be used for the edification of the church. In Acts, the disciples were speaking in tongues. In Corinth, Paul says only two or three should do so, and there must be an interpreter. In Acts, the result was amazement and unity in Corinth, division. So thus we come to the problem of 1 Corinthians 14 and what is taking place there. Here's another issue that we have to address as we look at this chapter, and then I'm going to read it, but I want you to know about this before we read it so you can pay attention to it. What does the word tongues mean? You have three different views. Some are going to say tongues in 1 Corinthians 14 is ecstatic utterance. Some would call it gibberish. Some would call it an unknown language. Some would call it something that you just don't know what it is and somebody else has to figure out what it is and try to interpret it. You've got several who hold that position. You've got others who say these are other languages. And in fact, the Holman Christian Standard Bible, which was just researched, put out, and has been on print for a few years, actually says other languages every time that word glossa or tongue is mentioned. You've got John Christensen from the old times, Charles Hodge, Warren Wiersbe, and others who say these are just other languages. It's not talking about any ecstatic utterance. On the third view, you've got both. You've got the two different tongues are being discussed, and sometimes it's talking about Acts 2 and other languages. Sometimes it's talking about a different type of gibberish or a different type of ecstatic utterance, depending on what you want to call it and how you want to phrase it or position it. Some who hold to this would be Spiros Zodiotis, Paige Patterson, John MacArthur, and others. In this camp of both, you will see some people that distinguish between the singular and the plural. And that the singular, if you have the King James version, I know we have some, how many have King James out there? I see several. It will say unknown tongue for the singular and then tongues for the plural. And so you see a distinguishing characteristic there. Now it's debatable as to whether that's accurate. There's a couple of problems when you look at that, but that's how they chose to interpret it. And so I want you to notice the difference between singular and between plural. And I want you to recognize that you may be reading this chapter thinking in your mind, ecstatic utterance, or language, or both, and that's going to affect your conversations with other people as you talk about this issue and as you read this chapter. And so, you have to understand the definition of the words you're bringing to this chapter affect your interpretation. Now, let me read through the first part here of 1 Corinthians chapter 14, if you will stand in honor of reading of God's Word. Pursue love. Coming right off of chapter 13, he's still focusing in on it. And earnestly desire the spiritual gifts, especially that you may prophesy. For one who speaks in a tongue speaks not to men but to God. For no one understands him, but he utters mysteries in the Spirit. On the other hand, the one who prophesies speaks to people for their upbuilding and encouragement and consolation. The one who speaks in a tongue builds up himself, but the one who prophesies builds up the church. Now, I want you all to speak in tongues, but even more to prophesy. The one who prophesies is greater than the one who speaks in tongues, unless someone interprets so that the church may be built up. Now, brothers, if I come to you speaking in tongues, how will I benefit you unless I bring you some revelation or knowledge or prophecy or teaching? If even lifeless instruments, such as the flute or the harp, do not give distinct notes, how will anyone know what is played? And if the bugle gives an indistinct sound, who will get ready for battle? So with yourselves, if with your tongue you utter speech that is not intelligible, how will anyone know what is said? For you will be speaking into the air. There are doubtlessly many different languages in the world, and none is without meaning. But if I do not know the meaning of the language, I will be a foreigner to the speaker, and the speaker a foreigner to me. So with yourselves, since you are eager for manifestations of the Spirit... Strive to excel in building up the church. Therefore, one who speaks in a tongue should pray for the power to interpret. For if I pray in a tongue, my spirit prays, but my mind is unfruitful. What am I to do? I pray with my spirit, but I pray with my mind also. I will sing praise with my spirit, but I will sing praise with my mind also. Otherwise, if you give thanks with your spirit, how can anyone in the position of an outsider say amen to your thanksgiving when he does not know what you are saying? For you may be giving thanks well enough, but the other person is not being built up. I thank God that I speak in tongues more than all of you. Nevertheless, in the church, I would rather speak five words with my mind in order to instruct others than 10,000 words in a tongue. Dear Lord, I pray today as we look at a controversial subject and a controversial passage that you will help us to understand what your word is saying to us that you will bring clarity, and that, Lord, you will help us to have unity as we seek to follow and to obey your word. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. All right. As we look at this chapter, here's what I want you to get. There's controversy about what some parts of it say, what some parts of it mean, but what we cannot get past as we read through 1 Corinthians 14 is that Paul is saying, seek prophecy over tongues, And that Paul is saying, whatever you do, you do it to edify the church. You do it for the building up of the church. You do it looking to others. Does that surprise us at all? It doesn't surprise us one bit. Because when you go all the way back to chapter eight and the stumbling block, he's been laying this groundwork to say, consider others before you look at yourself. Make sure you're not causing others to stumble. Give up your own personal freedoms if you have to, so that you don't cause your fellow man to fall into sin. And so look to others, not just to yourself. And when he comes to this issue, it's right off of love and what love is. And love is that self-sacrificial giving and concern for others above ourselves. And he walks into this first Corinthians chapter 14 and he talks He talks to them and he's going to say to them all throughout, build up others, build up the church, build up others, build up the church. And he starts right off here with pursue love, earnestly desire the spiritual gifts, seek them. Seek after the spiritual gifts and trying to get them. Look after love. Earnestly desire them. Now, how do you earnestly desire them? It's through prayer because the Spirit gives the gifts to whoever he can. And so you're not trying to manufacture gifts. You're asking God to give you gifts that you can use. And what do we use our gifts for? The building up of others. We use them in the local church and elsewhere to build others up. Verse 2, he says, For the one who speaks in a tongue, singular, speaks not to men but to God, for no one understands him. But he utters mysteries in the spirit. On the other hand, the one who prophesies speaks to people for their upbuilding. You see that upbuilding. And notice in this chapter how many times he talks about upbuilding or building up. It's all throughout the chapter. And he says, for the upbuilding and their encouragement and consolation. The one who speaks in a tongue builds up himself. But the one who prophesies builds up the church Now, I want you all to speak in tongues. Now, a lot of people really wish you hadn't put that in there because then it would be a little clearer. But here's the plural. And so it could be another language. I wish you all would speak in tongues. But now look, this is the main point. So don't get caught up in the details is but even more to prophesy for the one who prophesies is greater than the one who speaks in tongues unless someone interprets so that the church may be built up. Here I've got on the screen for you a couple things just to highlight. You can see here tongues speaks to men. Tongues builds up yourself. Tongues, unless someone interprets, is not going to build up the church. So what does he focus on? He focuses on upbuilding, on building, on building. You see it repeatedly here, looking to others to build them up, and you see how he's talking about prophecy in that particular section. Now you move on to verse six. And as you move through verse six and 12, he gives you an illustration. So we all like illustrations. And unfortunately today, I don't have time to use a lot of illustrations because I've got 40 verses to attempt to get through and I'm not gonna make it through all those. So here's what Paul says as we just walk through it in more of a running homily. Brothers, if I come to you speaking in tongues, plural, how will I benefit you unless I bring some revelation, knowledge, prophecy, or teaching? Here's his illustration. A lifeless instrument such as the flute or the harp. The flute, you play. A wind instrument. The harp is a string instrument. He's covering both grounds. If an, if an instrument that is blown, a wind instrument or a string instrument, if it has absolutely no connotation to it. In other words, if I were to pick up one of these guitars and to begin playing and I have absolutely no musical ability, you're going to look at me and go, that sounds horrible. If you have A little brother, a little sister, maybe yourself, or maybe you have a child. And you hear them practicing on the piano for the very first time. Oh, goodness, I wish it would stop. Oh, that's just horrible. And then they come and they say to you, how do you like my playing? It's beautiful, we love it. But you know inside, you really don't. Here's what he's saying. Lifeless instruments, if they don't give distinct notes, how will anyone know what is played? And if the bugle gives an indistinct sound, who's going to get ready for battle? It's kind of like that sound that just went off here. None of us know where it came from or what it means because it has no meaning to it, right? And so it doesn't do us any good. We're all just wondering, what is that? That would be like a bugle if it didn't have a distinct sound, if somebody didn't know what it was. And so if you were to play your bugle, but it was in the wrong melody, nobody gets ready for battle. That's what Paul's illustration is in comparing that to tongues, because you can't understand it. So with yourself, if with your tongue you utter speech that is not intelligible, how will anyone know what is said? Nobody's going to know what you're talking about, for you'll be speaking into the air. And then he says in verse 10, there are many languages in the world, none is without meaning. But if I do not know the meaning, I will be as a foreigner to the one who speaks and the speaker, a foreigner to me. Now that word foreigner is good, so I gotta give it to you, even though it doesn't really add a whole lot to the other stuff. It's Barbaros. Can you hear barbarian in there? It's the word where we get barbarian, barbaros in the original language. And so if a person's a foreigner to you, they're a barbarian to you. Have you ever traveled to a foreign country? How many of you here have been to a foreign country? We got to work on that because we need every hand going up before you graduate, right? Everybody on a mission trip before you graduate overseas to a foreign country. When you're in a foreign country and you hear them talking, or when you're at Walmart in a big city and you hear somebody talking in another language, you don't know what it is. You can't understand it, and you would like to engage in conversation with them and be nice and perhaps share the gospel with them, but you hear this language, and you don't know what they're talking about, and they don't know what you're talking about, and when you go to a foreign country, and you want to ask them, where, how do I get so-and-so? How do I do this? What's happening? And you begin to talk to them, and they say, we don't speak English, and your response is, okay, somebody else, because I can't communicate with that person. And what Paul is saying is if you come in and you're talking in a foreign language or if you're talking in an unknown language, either way, it's though you're a barbarian to them and as though they're a barbarian to you. So with yourselves, since you are eager for the manifestations of the Spirit, they wanted them, they sought them, they thought this was a big deal, it was really sought after. Since you're eager, strive to excel in what? Building up the church. You hear that word build again as it comes out over and over. And then you move to verses 13 through 19. Therefore, and he starts giving you some procedures now. He's told you how prophecy is better. Now you start moving into some procedures. Therefore, if one who speaks in a tongue should pray that he may interpret... For if I pray in a tongue, and a lot of different people will tell you that tongues is a private prayer language or something of that nature. It's just between you or God. Here's what Paul says. Paul says, if I pray in a tongue, my spirit prays, but my mind is unfruitful. And so you have some who say, just detach your mind and just let sounds come out and let your spirit communicate with God. Here, what Paul says is if I pray with my spirit, but my mind is unfruitful, what am I to do? I will pray with my spirit, but I will pray with my mind also. I'm going to struggle in my mind to come up with the words to express the thoughts, the empathy, the concern for others, the, the reflection of my own sinfulness and my own state so that I can do everything I can with my own mind to wrestle and to struggle with God. I'm going to pray with my mind also. When I sing praises, I sing with my spirit. And you guys do a great job of that. I love listening to you sing. I love the way that you sing out loud and and watching you as you worship edifies my own soul. We worship, but we don't just worship with our spirit, even though we worship with our spirit. We also worship with our minds also. We sing intelligible words. They do a great job choosing the music that fits with good doctrine so that as we're singing the music, we're singing praises to God. We're expressing theology with our minds as we're singing out to him. We don't just sing with our spirit, we sing with our mind also. Otherwise, if you give thanks with your spirit, how can anyone in the position of an outsider say amen to your thanksgiving? He doesn't know what you're saying. In other words, if I got up here and started talking in a foreign language that none of you understood, you would sit there and look at me like, What is he doing? I have no clue what he's talking about. You wouldn't get any communication you wouldn't interact, you wouldn't be edified, you couldn't say I disagree, you couldn't say amen. But now here's one point I want to make to you. is Paul here is saying this because there's some expected position of saying amen and agreeing with the speaker. And so one of the things I want us to work on, not today perhaps since this is a hard sermon, but one of the things I want us to work on is having fun when we're preaching the word too. And you do it sometimes. And you do it great sometimes. But let me just tell you, this is a sidebar, so put a comma here. As a speaker up here on the stage, looking out at 3,000 people with a whole bunch of lights and a whole lot of people to make eye contact with, the more you help the speaker out by encouraging them when they say something good, the better they're going to do up here on stage. So if a speaker is boring, instead of sitting there and going, gosh, we got a dud today, help him out. Make him think he's great. All right. Good job. Amen. Come on. I mean, you give it to him he might just become a better preacher while he's up here. All right. So don't distract him too much, but encourage him, give him an amen, but you can only give him an amen. I went forward too fast. You can only give him an amen. If you know what he's saying to your Thanksgiving, when he does not know what you're saying, you can't respond for you may be giving thanks well enough, but the other person is not being what built up. You see it again. It's like the sixth time we see the word built up in this passage. You start to get the point here. Paul is not so much talking about tongues in this passage as he's talking about building up others and how we seek to do that first and foremost. I thank God that I speak in tongues, and this is plural, so some would say other languages more than all of you. Nevertheless, in the church, I would rather speak, and this is important. How many words? Five words. Five words with my mind in order to instruct others than 10,000 words in a tongue, singular. Now, whatever your position, wherever you are on this issue, when Paul says, I would rather give you five words... Then 10,000, the word for 10,000 there is myriad. That is the largest Greek numeral unit in the Greek language. And so it's like saying, it could be saying many more than 10,000. He might've meant to say 10,000, but he could be saying the largest possible number. He could mean by this a gazillion words or a billion words or whatever number you want to put there. And he's saying, I'd rather give you five words with my mind in order to instruct others than 10,000 words in a tongue. What would Paul have said in five words? Jesus is Lord. Obey him. I don't know. I'm guessing. But those five words give you more to ponder on and think on for a day than 10,000 words that you don't understand. And that's Paul's point here, is that we're seeking to build up others. Amen. I like that. Well done. All right, we move to 20 through 25. And I've got to quit because we're going to take up an offering here. I'm just going to read it to you. Brothers, do not be children in your thinking. Be infants in evil. I pray you take that to heart. In your thinking, be mature. Here he quotes Isaiah chapter 28, verses 11 and 12. And in this, he demonstrates that tongues were assigned to the Jews who were unbelieving as condemnation, not otherwise he said the t- signs are a sign for believers, but for unbelievers, while prophecy is a sign not for unbelievers, but for believers. If therefore the whole church comes together, all speak in tongues, outsiders or unbelievers enter, will they not say you're out of your mind? But if all prophesy, an unbeliever outside comes in, he's convicted by all and is called to account by all. The secrets of his heart are disclosed, and so falling on his face, he will worship God and declare that God is really among you. What then, Brothers. When you come together, each one has a hymn, a lesson, a revelation, a tongue, or an interpretation. Here's here's another time. Let all things be done for the building up. If anyone speaks in a tongue, let there be two or three at most. Each in turn, someone has to interpret. If there is no interpreter, let each of them keep silent in the church and speak to himself and to God. Verse 29, let two or three prophets speak and let others weigh what is said. That's important to note that he's talking about weighing what is said with the prophets for the end of this chapter. If a revelation is made to another sitting there, let the first be silent. So you can all prophesy one by one, so that all may learn and be encouraged. Again, building others up. And the spirit of the prophets are subject to the prophets. What he's saying here is you don't get outside of yourself and start doing things you can't control. Your spirit is subject to your own mind. You are in control. For God is not a God of confusion, but of peace. As in all the churches of the saints... The women should keep silent in church. Now, what does this mean? Because this is another controversial section. Thanks, Paul. Really appreciate you adding that one in there, right? We already have looked at 1 Corinthians 11 where he says you could pray or prophesy with your head covered. And so he's not saying keep silent on everything. There's two interpretations that could fly here. Keep silent when it talks about speaking in tongues or keep silent when we talk about judging prophecy because one can prophesy and the others are going to weigh what is said. And so that's what he's talking about here. They're not permitted to speak, but should be in submission. As the law says also, if there's anything they desire to learn, let them ask their husbands at home, for it is shameful for a woman to speak in church. Or was it from the, you that the word of God came? Are you the only ones that has reached? If anyone thinks that he is a prophet or spiritual, he should acknowledge that the things I'm writing to you are a command of the Lord. If anyone doesn't recognize this, he is not recognized. So, my brothers, here he finishes, Earnestly desire to prophesy and do not forbid speaking in tongues, plural. But all things should be done decently and in order. Here's your main point. Paul says prophecy is a better gift than tongues because it builds others up. Don't speak in tongues unless there's an interpreter, so you build others up. Everything you do, you do it decently and in order so that you build others up. Because God's a God of order, not a God of confusion. However you parse the little details of this verse... That's the main point. Build others up. Now, thankfully, we're past all the controversial portions of 1 Corinthians. And so we don't have any other controversial portions left. But in our next sermon, we're going to talk about the gospel. And that's what unifies us all. We have dear, charismatic, and Pentecostal brothers and sisters who are real, genuine brothers and sisters in Christ. We pray for their success. We disagree with them on what this passage means, but we pray for their success. And so I hope you will join me in praying for them as well.